If you would, uh, would you please turn with me to Matthew chapter one? Uh, this, uh, this Christmas season marks um, my family's fifth Christmas in Zeni, Ohio. And since starting back in the beginning of November in, in 2018, I have had this reoccurring dream. <clears throat> um, I have it often. I probably have it two to three times a month, always on a Saturday night. And uh, the, the dream varies, but it goes something like this. I show up here on a Sunday morning, and I am completely unprepared. Um, either I thought somebody else was teaching, or I didn't even think it was Sunday, or my notes are missing. I, I, I can't get, like, I, I'm just completely unprepared to do anything or say anything coherent. And yet I get up on the platform, and I just start talking, just babbling away. And, and sometimes I'm opening up scripture, and I'm trying to explain it, but it's completely wrong and heretical. And, and I look out at you, and some of you are looking at me like, I'm crazy, and some of you are looking at me like I'm saying really profound stuff, and you're nodding and smiling, and, 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 and then I realize, like, there's a second service after this service, and so I, I, I trudge through the first one, only to get to the, the second one to have to trudge through that, and, 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 I'm, and I'm always wearing something inappropriate. Like, I just got out of bed and rushed over here, or uh, oftentimes, I've, I've had this one where I'm, I'm wearing, like, overhauls, but with no shirt underneath, Sometimes I'm not wearing pants. Um, sometimes you notice, and sometimes you don't, and I don't know which is worse. But I, I have these, these dreams, um, and, and, and on a reoccurring basis, and, 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 and before, like, you, you, you call in, you know, like, some Freudian dream interpretation person, like, I think it's probably reasonable to, to you know, like, I still think, like, public speaking for people is still ranking pretty high on the fears list, Right? And, and so you probably can understand maybe why I have those dreams. I, 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 I think this is important. I think it matters. And so I do spend a lot of time you know, preparing. And, and to me, the idea of, of showing up unprepared is, is, is a scary thought. Um, uh, and, and, and I also recognize that within that, like there's fallenness there. Like there's sinfulness. Like I put too much of my identity in this and, uh, and make it too much about performing rather than uh, just, just obeying. And, uh, and so that makes its way into my subconscious. And so I have these horrible dreams. Um, uh, and, and the thing is, is like when it comes to dreams, like dreams, um, they can be very impactful. Um, they, 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 can, uh, they can be very realistic. Have you ever had dreams where uh, you, you're transitioning into awakening and, and you can't sort of let the dream go? Like it sort of has like a, like a hold on you for a little bit. Excuse me, like you're, you're, the dream, like you wake up and, and, and you have to have that first cup of coffee. And if it's after that first cup of coffee, you're like, okay, now I know what's real. Like, okay, that, that, that part, that's not, that's not real. That's not, that's not facts. That's, that's, that's fiction. And you begin to sort of, you know, tear yourself out of the dream and, and draw the lines of reality and what's dream again. Because, you know, dreams can be very impactful. They can be very emotional. They can, um, they can be very, uh, very, very powerful things. And I think that that's one of the reasons that God used dreams at times to speak to people. Use dreams to speak to people. And, and when we look at Scripture, we can find 21 occurrences where uh, people... Um, dreamed, and, and through dreams, God spoke to them, and God either warned them, or he gave them a word uh, of, that was prophetic in nature, something that was going to happen that hadn't yet come true, or giving them direction for a way to go in, in their life. We see that uh, 15 times in the Old Testament, and you see some of the, the individuals that, um, that have those dreams— are pretty, you know, uh, well-known biblical characters. So there's Jacob, and then um, his, his son Joseph, and then uh, there's uh, another guy, a prophet named Daniel. The, the three of those guys are actually tied uh, in the Old Testament for having the most divine dreams. Um, oftentimes, they interpreted dreams for other people. But then there's also, like, insignificant sort of secondary characters that have dreams. Um, so there's Abimelech. Maybe you've never, never heard of, of, of this guy, Abimelech. We'll talk about him a little bit later. But um, there's also a, a, this dream in, in the book of Judges where um, the soldiers within the army, uh, that's an enemy of God's people, um, they're, they're, there's two soldiers who are talking together. And, uh, and one of them says, I had this crazy dream last night. Essentially, I saw this, uh, this big loaf of bread roll through our camp and roll over our tents. And, and his buddy essentially says to him, oh, I know what that means. It means we're going to be defeated by the Israelites tomorrow. And that's what happens. God actually gives a dream to an enemy soldier. 
seemingly insignificant, insignificant person. Well, um, we see six dreams in the New Testament. All of them are in the Gospel of Matthew. Five of them are in the passage that we're working our way through through Advent, Matthew 1 and 2. Five dreams here, four of them all given to this man named Joseph. Now, just so you know, four dreams, that, that makes it double what, what he has, the number of dreams, divine dreams, that he has than anybody else in Scripture. God spoke more to Joseph in the New Testament through dreams than he did with anybody else in Scripture. Okay? So we're going to look at those dreams um, this morning, and, and the way that we're going to sort of approach this morning is first we're going to um, uh, we're gonna look at the dreams themselves, we're going to look at what God said, uh, we're going to look at the response that people had. <clears throat> uh, secondly, um, what do these dreams say about men in general and fathers in particular? If, if last week we, we talked about mothers, and we, we looked at the mothers in Jesus' genealogy, uh, this week we're going to talk about fathers. Um, third, uh, what does this have to do with joy? Uh, we're going through this Advent series, and, uh, and as we, we walk through this, we, we, we light different candles of significance. Last week, we talked about uh, the, the genealogy of Jesus. And in the genealogy of Jesus, we're pointed towards, towards this hope that we have in him. Next week, we're going to be talking about the prophecies that we see in Matthew 1 and 2. And, and how they will point us towards this peace that we will get to have with one another and with God because of this plan that God is working through. And then the following week, we're going to look at the, these, these kings that we see in the first two chapters. And they're really human kings versus the divine king. And the major contrast there is that one is a true king of love. And, and, and we'll light that candle that week. This morning, we will light the candle of of joy, and as we look at, at the, the dreams that God particularly gives to Joseph. So uh, what does any of this have to do with joy? And then lastly, when we partake of communion together later, um, we're going to look, where's the gospel in this story? Where's the good news in, in what we see here? So uh, with that, let's get underway. Matthew 1, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So the birth of Jesus took place in this way. A little background information here. Uh, Joseph is from a place called Bethlehem. That's a, a town in Judea, southern Palestine. He's living in Nazareth, the region of Galilee, northern Palestine. Uh, we know that he's called a carpenter in Luke, but the word there is tecton, and, and literally what it means is somebody who's a skilled worker, and it could be in building ships, or it could be a wood carpenter, but it could also be a stonemason. And if you ever visit Palestine, and you take a look around and see how many trees there are compared to how many rocks there are, it would probably be the latter. He was probably a stonemason, but regardless, he's a guy who worked with his hands. He didn't make a whole lot of money, um, uh, probably uh, going to live pretty poor for, for his lo whole life. The, the, the thing that, that, that Joseph had for him was that he was a man of character. He, he had his name. He had uh, his, his honor. In a shame-honor culture such as this, your name is everything. And you, you live your life in such a way not to bring shame upon your family name, but to bring honor to your family name. And he had a good name, and he was about to, to lose it. Because he finds out that the girl that he's betrothed to is pregnant. Um, he's probably in his mid-20s. Mary was maybe 15 or 16 years old, common for the culture. And uh, he learns that the, the one he's betrothed to, the one he's engaged to, is, is, is pregnant. Now, um, he, he, he has one of two options before him. He could, uh, in, a, in a zealous way, protect his name and very vindictively have Mary drug out in public and shame her. Very, very vindictively, he could shame her in public, but in so doing, protect his name, 
or he could quietly break the engagement and the relationship and, and walk away. And he chooses to quietly divorce her. It says in, in the text, he was a just man. He wasn't hateful, he wasn't spiteful, he wasn't vindictive, he was a just man. And he was a just man because he, he, he doesn't have the option of marrying her, because to marry her would mean he's, he's saying the baby's his. It would be to, to, to affirm that he's partaken in, in whatever uh, unrighteous act has, has taken place, and, and he would be saying it's, it, it, the, the child is his, and it wasn't. If he's a just man, he, he wouldn't do that. And so he's going to, to divorce her quietly, and that's when God shows up. God shows up in a dream and, uh, and, and says five things to Joseph. First, he says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Don't be afraid of what the culture is going to think about you. Don't be afraid about what your community is going to say about you. Don't be afraid of, of how this would bring disgrace to your name. Don't be afraid of the shame that people will hold up in front of your face. Don't be afraid of what anybody says. Only fear what I have to say about you. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Second thing he, he says to, to Joseph is that this child is, uh, is, is a divine miracle. That, that she, in fact, is, is a virgin and she will give birth to a son because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Humanity and divinity intertwining and becoming in, in one flesh fully God and fully man. And, and God is essentially saying, Joseph, I know you know how, how, how babies come into being. I, I know you know, but I'm making an exception. This will be the one child in all of history that will be different in this way. This is a divine miracle, Joseph. The third thing he says is, uh, she's going to give birth to a son. Fourthly, you're to name this son Jesus, which means Jehovah is salvation, or Jesus, Jehovah is, is our Savior. Jesus is salvation. So, so you're not to name him after yourself. You're not to name him uh, like a family name or anything like that, which would have been common. You're, you're to name him what, what God the Father tells you to name him, Jesus. But lastly, this child is going to save the world. This child is going to save the people from their sins. Joseph is, is finding out two things, essentially, right here. One, he's finding out how hard of a road he has before him. Here he, he's being told, take a woman that you have no obligation to and be responsible for her. Take this child and raise it like your own son. Be responsible for a child that's not yours. In other words, the life that you had planned is gone. I've got a new plan. And it's a plan that's going to be a very difficult one to follow. It includes shaming yourself or being involved in that. It includes losing the good name that you have. That There's a great price that you're going to pay, Joseph. He learns that. But the second thing he learns, he's actually getting to take part in something bigger. This child is going to save the people from their sins. God is redeeming humanity, and God is going to do it through this child, and Joseph gets to be a part. He gets to participate in what God is doing in the universe. That's what he finds out. Now, when we look at redemptive history, and we look at the times in history where God shows up to somebody, and he tells them, here's a hard road to follow. I'm giving you a difficult task. I'm giving you a difficult job. What do we often see as the response from people in Scripture? What do we often see? Now, um, in Genesis chapter 20, the, the, book, the thing we just read, that's the first dream in the New Testament. The, the first dream in the Old Testament. Let's ponder that one for a second. In Genesis chapter 20, Abraham, the, the great patriarch, the number one guy in that list of genealogy, right? Very, very important person in the Old Testament. Um, he and his wife, Sarah, moved to a region in Palestine called Gerar, and there they encounter a local king named Abimelech. Now, uh, Abimelech wants to, to have a treaty with Abraham. Abraham, by this point, is a very will, rich, wealthy, powerful individual. Abimelech wants to form an alliance with him, and oftentimes alliances are formed through marriage. Abraham told his wife, Sarah, I want you to pretend to be my sister, not my wife, because I don't want to die. I don't want uh, Abimelech to kill me and take you, pretend to be my sister and not be my wife. Now, this is not the first time he did it. 
He actually does it much earlier. In Egypt, he tells Sarah to, to pretend to be his sister, and, and there Pharaoh takes her as a wife, and in the end result, Pharaoh gives her back, and, and all, of, all of Abraham's wealth essentially comes through that deception. But he did it in order to save his own skin, to save his own life, and he's doing it again. Well, uh, Abimelech takes Sarah, and that night, he has a dream. God shows up in a dream, and, he, and God essentially says, you're a dead man. You've taken another man's wife. And Abimelech says, I didn't know. I'm completely, it's like, I didn't know. I'll give her back. And so he does. He, he gives Sarah back, and he gives Abraham a thousand pieces of silver, saying, I, I didn't touch her. She's completely innocent. Here's, here's a bunch of money as, as proof, basically. And once again, Abraham profits off of this. But, but how, how many of us, we, we would look at Abraham and we would say, you, you know, he had a, a certain degree of responsibility towards Sarah, don't you think? Don't you think he had a certain a, a degree of obligation towards his own wife and like not denying that she's his wife? Like a certain responsibility toward, toward her as a husband and in that role? And, and what is he doing? In order to save his own skin, he's pretending like she's his sister. It's cowardice. It's cowardice. And now look at Joseph. And here's a guy who's being told by God, this woman you have no obligation to. You are not obligated to marry her, but I'm telling you to. I'm telling you to be responsible for her. I'm telling you to be responsible for this child and raising him. And what does Joseph do? What does he do? He, he believes First of all, he has this, this dream and he doesn't wake up in the morning going like, wow, that was really weird. I need to have a couple of cop, cups of coffee before I figure this one out. No, he, he wakes up and he believes what he's dreamed and he obeys. It's faith in action. He believes and he obeys. And notice, there's no emotional response. There's no emotional response. There's no words. Like there's no quotes from David in response to this. The only response we see he believes and he obeys. And that's it. Well, the story uh, moves on in, uh, in Matthew chapter two and we're introduced to the Magi, the wise men. Now, uh, you'll notice a big difference between Matthew and Luke's account of Jesus' birth. Matthew doesn't record, uh, for instance, that there was a, a decree by Caesar Augustus to, uh, to, for, for, for people to return to their homes in order to be counted. Uh, we don't see the move uh, of, of Joseph taking Mary and his pregnant wife from Nazareth to Bethlehem. We don't see you know, a lot of that Hollywood drama uh, so to speak. We don't, we don't see them getting to Bethlehem and there's no room for them in the inn and Jesus being, uh, being born in a city. We don't see any of that. When we pick it up in, in Matthew chapter two, Jesus is already born. So the night he was born, a star appeared in the sky and, and learned men from the east, probably from Babylon, studying the stars and who knew prophecy, see a sign in the sky that points to the fact that a new king is born, a king of the Jews, and so they begin to travel towards it. They arrive in Jerusalem thinking, where else would a king be born but the capital? They arrive to the, go to the palace expecting to find this king there, and instead they encounter Herod the Great. Herod the Great ruled over Palestine um, for a large amount of territory, but it was all under the Roman Empire. Um, he, he was known for taxes. He was known for grand structures that he built throughout Palestine. He was also known for being ruthless. One Caesar said that it was better to be a dog in his house than to be a son because he killed his own son because he thought he was going to steal his throne. And so the wise men show up on his doorstep and say, where is this one that's born king of the Jews, this baby born king of the Jews? And he's saying to himself, I'm the king of the Jews and I'm not going anywhere. But he refers to his high priest. Now, um, uh, uh, Herod the Great, he was, uh, he was a Jew because he, uh, he adopted Judaism. He was an Arab by birth, but it was probably a wise move for him to, to, to embrace Judaism, at least uh, externally, in order to rule these Jewish people. So he goes to his high priests and he asks them and, and the scribes, tell me about this Messiah. What should I know about where he's being born or to be born and all that? And they say, Bethlehem. So he goes back to the Magi. He says, Bethlehem's a little town a couple miles south of here. The, the Messiah is said to be born there. 
And so here's the deal. Go and find him. And when you find him, come back and give me his address so that I can go and worship him too, which is code for kill him. Remove him from the competition, so to speak. So uh, the, the, the wise men head south. They go to Bethlehem. They find him. Now, sorry to ruin this for you. Uh, I, I know in, in all of our, uh, our, our nativity scenes and, and in the movies, uh, you see Jesus in a stable and there's wise men there the night of his birth. They didn't show up the night of his birth. Uh, they weren't there. When uh, the, the wise men arrive, uh, they're not in a stable and Jesus is no longer a baby. Uh, the word for, for child uh, in this passage is, uh, is brevos. And, and brevos is the Greek word for unborn child or newborn child. In Greek, there's no distinction. Uh, but the word, that word's not used here. The, the word um, uh, pideon is used instead. And that, that means like young child, but think toddler. So they arrive, and, and here's Jesus, and he's not a little tiny baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. He's a little drooling toddler running around. And they worship him, and they give him gifts. And then we read this in verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So the second dream that we see in the New Testament and, and in this passage is not given to Joseph, it's given to these wise men. We don't know how many they, they were. We know there was a plurality of them. And what's interesting is, is they all seem to have the same dream. You ever wonder if, if more than one person has the same dream? And here's an, an account of, of that happening. But God tells them, don't go back to Herod and, and give him the boy's address. Instead, leave and go another way. And they believe God and they obey God and they go. Now, verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. Um, so this, he has another dream. He has a second dream, and now he's tied with, with the patriarchs and great men of the Old Testament for having uh, the, the, the most amount of divine dreams. And yet, what is it that he gets to discover through this dream? Get up quickly, take the boy and his mom, and become a fugitive. Great news. Become a fugitive. Go on the run. Go to Egypt and live in a strange country. Be a foreigner in a strange place because the, the Herod that, that you know, he's, he's trying to kill the boy. So, so go on the run and become a fugitive. Now, again, we looked at redemptive history and we asked the question, how did people respond when God told them to do difficult things? See, there's, there's another individual in the Old Testament who was a fugitive and who was told to go to Egypt. It was Moses. And at the beginning of the book of the Exodus, we read about how he was adopted into Pharaoh's household. He grew up in Egypt. And, and at the age of 40, he finds out he's not an Egyptian. He's actually an Israelite. He's, he's a member of that race of people that the Egyptians are enslaving. And so he's walking around one day and he sees an Egyptian taskmaster beating an Israelite slave and eventually attacks him, kills him, buries his body in the sand. And he's found out. And so Moses has to go on the run. He becomes a fugitive. He actually committed murder. But, but he becomes a, a fugitive. And he goes to a strange land, a foreign land. And there he, he gets married. And he begins to raise uh, a family. And he has a new career as, as a shepherd. And then he encounters God. Now, it, it's not a dream. But he encounters God in a burning bush. And through this revelation, God tells him what he wants him to do. He wants him to go back to Egypt and he wants to go to the Pharaoh, and he's, he's demanding that, that, that his people be, be released. And, and here's Moses' response to being told to do something difficult. Excuses. Excuse after excuse after excuse. I'm not articulate enough. I'm not bright enough. I, I, you've got the wrong guy. Excuse after excuse after excuse. You look at Joseph, and here he is. He's told, I know you build a life for yourself here in Bethlehem. I know you're, you're living in a house now. You've got a job. You're, you're part of a community. Leave all that behind. All that's over. Get out of town. Become a fugitive. Go live in Egypt. That's what he's told. And what is Joseph's response? 
He believes and he obeys. We don't see any emotional response. We don't see any words. He just believes and he obeys. And, and, and this is faith and it's in action. Well, the story continues. Um, we'll talk more about this in, in the coming weeks, but um, Herod, uh, unable to locate uh, Jesus uh, individually, decides to de- destroy all the children of Bethlehem under the age of two. But then he dies. Then he dies. And uh, in verse 19 through 21, we pick it up again. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. And here the the directions are, are simple. Get up, get going, take the boy, take his mom, and go home. Go home. Now, um, when Herod the Great died, uh, there was a, a battle uh, over, over who would take over between his, his sons. Three of them actually traveled to Rome, and Caesar Augustus decided to divide Palestine up in between them. And a, and a guy named Archelaus, uh, he got Judea. He got the, the region where Bethlehem was. That would have been the place that David would have returned to. But Archelaus was uh, a ruthless guy. He took the throne really, really young. And, uh, and some historians think that he was crazy, uh, that, that he, was, he was mentally insane and disturbed. Uh, he actually had to be removed by Caesar Augustus from the throne. He was, he was ruthless and, uh, and, and incredibly cruel. So, uh, so Joseph finds out Archelaus is on the throne. God warns him in another dream, verse 22 and 23. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. Joseph has four dreams. Divine dreams, the most of anybody in Scripture. And yet each one of those dreams is God telling him something very, very difficult. Here the, the, the story comes full circle. You, you get to go back to Nazareth. You get to go back to the place where your relationship with Mary began, where nobody understood about where her child came from, where nobody understood about you know, your integrity, where everybody assumes a false narrative about you. You're going back to that community where people won't accept you and won't understand you and won't embrace you. Yay. That's where you get to go. You get to go home. Now again, we, we look back. Redemptive history, and we see what happens when God tells people difficult things. How do they respond to that? Well, Jacob was the descendant of, of Abraham, his grandson. And, and Jacob was known as a deceiver. He was a liar. He was a manipulator. He took his brother's birthright, and, and he stole his brother's blessing, Esau, and Esau wanted to kill him, and so he goes on the run. He's a fugitive because his brother wants to kill him. And so he goes to another country. He goes to a distant relative. And, and though he leaves his home empty-handed, he goes to this place, and God blesses him. He blesses him with, with, with four wives, maybe a blessing, uh, four wives, lots of kids from him, the 12 tribes of Israel come from, and he, he, he blesses him financially. He becomes rich there. God blesses him immensely so that one night he has a dream and God tells him in that dream, return home, go home. And so he picks up his family and he begins to make that trek home. But he gets almost all the way home and, and he knows he's gonna have to face his brother Esau. And so he stops, he sends his, his family ahead of himself and, and he decides he's gonna spend the night praying. He's going to spend the night praying, and, and, and he's going to ask God to deliver him from his brother Esau. And it says in, in Genesis 38 that God appears or comes to, 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 to Jacob, and, and, and a man wrestles. That's what it says. A man wrestled with Jacob all night long, and the two of them wrestled back and forth, trying to subdue one another. No one wins. And finally at dawn, the angel of the Lord says to Jacob, let me go. And there Jacob is. He's saying, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. He left home empty-handed, and God had blessed him. He blessed him abundantly. And yet here Jacob is, I want more from you. I want more from you. He's supposed to be participating in this plan of God. He's supposed to be going along with what God is doing. There's supposed to be belief and obedience. But he says, yeah, I'll obey, but give me more. 
And some of us, we have this, this idea when it comes to God that, yeah, we'll do what he wants us to do if he blesses us, if he gives us this. Yeah, we'll do hard things, but he's going to owe us. And that's the heart of Jacob. Now, and you look at Joseph, and here's Joseph, and, and he's being asked to do one more journey, one more difficult trip to a place where he's not gonna be accepted, and he's not gonna be understood. And you don't see Joseph saying, yeah, God, I'll do it, but you owe me. Yeah, I'll go home, but, but you're gonna have to bless me. You're gonna have to provide all these things for me. Like, I've been raising this kid for a while now. Where's my back child support? I'll do it, but, but you, have to, you have to make it worth my while. See, like, there's this quid pro quo sort of transactional relationship that he, he doesn't have with God that, that Jacob puts on display. That's not the way Joseph responds. How does Joseph respond? He believed. He believed what God said, and he obeyed. Faith in action, simply, that's, that's simply it. There, there's no emotional response. There's no verbal words. You look at Matthew and Luke and try to find a place where you find the words of Joseph in quotation marks. You don't see him saying anything. He's just silent. And he's submissive. He's silently in, and he's submissive. Now, I, I, I don't want to put Joseph upon a pedestal. I'm not trying to deify Joseph. I'm not telling you, hey, be like Joseph, right? I'm not trying to do it, but, but I do want us to point out something. I want us to point out something. In the first dream, God said, this boy is gonna take away the sins of the world. And Joseph found out that he was participating in something really, really big, much bigger than his own life. He had that bigger perspective, and because he had that bigger perspective, when it came to the difficult circumstances of life, he had something bigger to look to. And so he was able to believe and to obey, to have faith and to act upon it. It wasn't that he was supernatural. It wasn't that he was divine. He just had a glimpse of a bigger picture. And I think the problem for many of us, the problem for many of us is the fact that we don't see the bigger picture. We only see our own lives and we see our own plans and we see how those aren't working out. And so we respond in the negative, sinful ways that we respond instead of seeing the bigger plan. Now let's talk, about, let's talk about men. And let's talk about fatherhood in particular. And I want to preempt this by saying this. Uh, that what I'm about to say, it, it doesn't mean that it's not applicable to women. Regardless of, of your gender, uh, this is applicable to you. But men, I want to draw this out especially, we have a history of not being responsible when it comes to participating in God's plan. I mean, we have a history that goes all the way back to the garden of, of not being responsible for what God has given us. We have a history of, of, of cowardice as seen in Abraham. We, we have a history of, of arguing or making up excuses as seen in Moses. We have a history of, of bargaining and, and, and believing that, that we can manipulate God to get him to do what we want. We have a history of transactional quid pro quo kind of relationships as seen in Jacob. And we have a history of this, of not taking responsibility. And what we've done instead is we've compartmentalized. We've had our plan and we've had our careers, and we've had our goals, and we've had everything that we are pursuing. And faith, that's over here. Faith, that, that only comes into play when I absolutely need it. Salvation comes from me and my work ethic and my education and, 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 and all the things that I bring to the table. We, we compartmentalize, we put faith off to the side, and we relegate it Men, we say that faith is for women and for children. It's for women and for children. It's not for us. You see, I think our culture, if we were, our culture were to examine Joseph, and here's this guy who, uh, he, he marries a, this, this girl, 
you know, and, and it wasn't, he wasn't obliged to do that, and yet he does it anyway. That would be seen as weakness. Here's this guy who's going to raise this kid who's not his own, take responsibility and all the, all the things that are going to go into that. Our culture would see that as, as weakness. Like, where's your plan, Joseph? Like, what are you doing with your life? Don't, aren't you about to pursue something and conquer and establish and climb a ladder and, and achieve? And, 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 and you're going you're gonna to be pushed around by this God who's telling you to go here and then to go there and to go there. Like, the, this guy in the world's eyes would just be seen as just as weak and submissive and small. And yet I would argue that he was a man of tremendous moral courage. Tremendous moral courage who took responsibility for other people's lives. And he didn't complain about it and he didn't whine about it. He just believed and obeyed. And I think that, that in that belief and that obedience, he demonstrates more strength than we give him credit for. And do you see that? You see, it's not just a question of whether or not we obey. Now think about this for a second. You, you might be here this morning and say, well, I, I don't know what God has told me to do. Right? God hasn't shown up to me in a divine dream and spelled out for me what I'm supposed to do. And yet we have this. Yes, he has told you, oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? Men, we know. Men, we know we're supposed to love God with everything we have. We know we're supposed to love our neighbors. We know we're supposed to pick up a cross and follow him. Men, we know that there is a plan at work. There is a commission, and we've been sent to proclaim the good news and to make disciples and to baptize people. We know that we're to teach people to obey the very same thing that we are trying to obey. Like Men, we know. It's right there. There's not a single one of us that say, I didn't know. We know. The question is, first of all, are we obeying? Do we believe it? And are we obeying? And, and, and by and large, I think the men that I'm speaking to are obeying. The men who aren't obeying probably aren't here. We are obeying. But, but the question for you men, how are you obeying? With what attitude? With what attitude? Men, we're really good at the nonverbal stuff. We're really good at things, especially like sulking. Is there, is there anything that rivals the male sulk? Head down, shoulders front forward, and walking along, kicking the dirt. Like, we will go and comply to do things, and we will sulk all the way there. We'll have to be drug places, and we'll, we'll have to be moved through through nagging. We'll have to be moved through guilt. We'll have to be moved through obligation. That's what will move us along. How are we obeying? I mean, did any of you walk in this morning with that attitude? I'm here, not because I want to be here, but because my wife expects me to be here. The silk, right? The, the gaffa, the, 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 the words that we just sort of just grunt out. You look at Joseph and, and where do you see that? Like, where, where do you see like the emotional outbursts? Or where do you see the, the expletive words in response to being told to do hard things? Like you don't see, you know, Joseph like kicking the ground as he's walking all the way to Egypt. You know, you don't see him like going over the donkey and like cinching up the saddle a little too tight maybe to take out his frustration on something else. Like you don't, you don't see him like uh, you know, passive aggressive. Mary comes up to him and says, "You know, Joseph, I know things are really hard, and you've been asked to do a lot. How are you holding up? Fine. You, you don't you don't see that. I mean, you don't see anything except belief and obedience. And I think that speaks louder than than anything else. I think about uh, what my kids are experiencing in me." as a preacher and what duality they, do they see in me do they see a Dr. Jekyll and a Mr. Hyde do they see me up here on a Sunday morning talking about grace 
and forgiveness and love, but on a Sunday night, they hear me preaching a different message about how dirty their room is and how they're not brushing their teeth long enough and how I wish they'd stop fighting. Do they hear the lecture after lecture after lecture? They see the, the emotion in my face and word upon word upon word thinking this time I'll change them, this time I'll fix them. And will that be the thing that causes them to follow Jesus? I don't think it will be. I think instead they need to see quiet submission. I think they need to come downstairs in the morning and see me reading my Bible or they need to see me engaged in conversations about Jesus and they need to see me serving their mom. Quiet submission. They just need to see me believe and obey and not complain and grumble all the way. Men, are we doing that? Next thing to, to ask is, where's the joy in all this? Where's the joy? The, the word joy is not used in, in this passage. It's not used of, of Joseph in particular. But I think it's modeled by him. It doesn't come out in his expressive emotions, and it doesn't come out in his expressive words, but it comes out in his expressive action. Joy. Two passages to talk about with you. The first is this, Hebrews 12, 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see how joy is used there? For the joy set before him, Jesus endured everything that he endured because of, he, of what he knew it would accomplish. He knew what the end result would be. And so he was able to move forward despite the circumstances, despite the hard road and the pain. He was able to move forward because of the joy set before him. See, here's Joseph, and he's told at the very beginning, this child is gonna take away the sins of the world. He's gonna take away your sin, Joseph. For the joy set before you, endure this journey. And he had, the, he had the, the, the ability to see a bigger picture and to submit to it, to believe it and obey it with faith and action. See, joy comes across not necessarily with, with words and with emotions, but with deeds. Action that comes from belief. The second passage uh, first of all, before we move on, notice how Jesus endured. Uh, Isaiah says this about Jesus. Uh, Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus endured all of that quietly. Quietly. Second passage about joy. Third John 1, 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. No greater joy than to hear my children walking in the truth. Now he's talking about his spiritual children, children that he discipled along the way. All of you, men or women, whether you raise a biological or adoptive family, are called to become spiritual fathers and mothers. And, and when you do, you will hopefully look back and find the greatest joy that you've ever experienced in seeing people you've discipled follow the truth. Walk in truth. But, but mothers and fathers, what are we looking for in out of our kids? Your, your kids, they, they might excel academically, they might excel musically, they might excel athletically, they might excel in every sort of thing, but what if they're not walking in the truth? On the other hand, what if they fail miserably academically and miserably in, in every other avenue of life, but they're walking in the truth? You see, a good dad will sacrifice for his children. A good dad will sacrifice for his children. A great dad will do it so that they see Jesus. 
A good dad will sacrifice for his children. And, and how many times have you heard a dad say, I want my kid to have a better life than I have. I want my kid to have more opportunities than I have. I want my kid to have this and have that. We want them to have this life here and now. A good dad sacrifices for his kids. A great dad sacrifices so that they see Jesus find abundant life here and now, but eternal life forever. Do you see? To know the joy of seeing your kids follow Jesus. Well, this morning we get to light the candle of joy. The joy that we have comes from this child, from this baby. It, it comes from the incarnation. It comes from the fact that God had a plan, and in this, this plan that none of us would dream up, in this plan, humanity and divinity come together in one person who's fully God and fully man, and so he's able to, 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 to represent us to God, to, to do what only God can do, but he's also able to be a proper representative for us. And this baby comes. He comes and he has a hard road before him. A hard road. He, he becomes small, he becomes insignificant, he becomes poor, he becomes humble, he takes on flesh. We have no idea what it would be like for that. And he goes through life every moment of every day completely faithful, completely righteous, completely holy. And he does all that so that he can use it to pay. One righteous life for the sins of the world. And he takes your sin and he gives you his righteousness. And he takes the wrath of God on himself. But for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And God raised him from the dead and right now he's seated in the heavens. You see, the Advent for us, it, it is about waiting with expectation, but it's not waiting for December 24th or, or December 25th. It's not about waiting anxiously so we get to open up presents. And all. It's about waiting for the return of Jesus. The joy that is set before us. We have been freed from the punishment of sin. And by the Holy Spirit, we've been given power over sin. But we long for the day when the presence of sin is removed. And that day will come, and that's what we look forward to with joy. Now, as we conclude this morning, I want to conclude with, with communion. But before we get there, you'll notice the tank behind me. Um, someone from the Branches House Church is going to be baptized this morning. And as it's become our custom, if you're here this morning and you would say, I know Jesus, and I am doing my best to imitate Jesus and follow Jesus, but I've never been baptized, then what are you waiting for? In a moment, I'll pray and I'll head out those doors. And if you would like to be baptized this morning, we have clothes for you and a place for you to change in to and, and you can be baptized. But I want to talk about communion because through communion, I want us to see the gospel. Be reminded of the gospel. And here is Joseph, and he was told this from God. This child's gonna take away the sin of the world. He's gonna take away the sin of the world. And how he does that? He becomes flesh. He lives a righteous life. He gives that life away. He suffers the wrath of God. He dies. That's how he takes away our sin. That's how he takes away our sin. Now, in a moment, you're gonna partake of the, those communion elements. And you can begin to pass them now. But in the bread, we're reminded of his body given for us. And in the juice and the cup, we're reminded of his blood poured out for us. He did take away our sin. And, and Joseph, when he, when he began that journey, when, when he got up the next morning after that first dream and he obeyed, when he believed and he obeyed, his, the rest of his life changed as he began to participate in what God was doing in the universe. When you and I partake of communion together, we are participating in what God is doing in the universe. We are participating in redemption. When you drink that cup and you eat that bread. Now, as, as you do this morning, I want you to work through some things in regards to Advent and your own heart. Uh, in a moment, uh, Aaron's going to, to play. And as she plays, uh, this is your opportunity to, um, to look uh, with the power of the Holy Spirit and with his help at your own heart and what's coming out of it. 
And if necessary, to spend some time uh, repenting, uh, but also to be reminded of the faith that you have. And, and here's where I want you to begin. As you experience this Advent season, what attitudes, words, or actions are coming out of you that reflect a resistant heart to God's direction? Are you, are you believing what God has said? Are you obeying? And how are you obeying? What is the attitude of that obedience? Are you living with, with cowardice? Are you living with, with excuses? Are you, are you living with, with the quid pro quo? I'll do if you bless me. If you have a transactional attitude, how are, what attitude are you obeying with? Or are you obeying with joy? And, and secondly, does that attitude, if it's a negative one, could it possibly be because your mind is set on your own plan? And because your plan isn't working out, that's where all the negative stuff is coming from? When maybe your mind should be set on God's plan because it's bigger and it's better? And how did that plan come about? What has Jesus done for you? Look at what he's accomplished. The God of the universe taking on flesh and dying for you and rising for you. And where does that come from? It comes out, out of a plan a plan that God made before the foundations of the earth because he is a good, great, glorious, and gracious God. So spend the following moments praying, pondering, <clears throat> reflecting, repenting, and with faith turning. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for the great love that you've had for us. Thank you for this plan you set in motion. Thank you for your faithfulness despite our unfaithfulness. Lord Jesus, thank you for taking on flesh, for willingly come, for the joy set before you. you. You didn't do what you did out of guilt or obligation. You didn't do that because you were nagged by the Holy Spirit. You didn't do that because uh, someone was forcing you to. You did it willingly. Lord Jesus, you came willingly to live the life we couldn't, pay the penalty we couldn't, and suffer for the joy set before you. Lord Jesus, I pray by the power of your spirit you would teach us that joy. Help us to get our eyes off of ourselves and onto you. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen.